Welcome to the Tech Cat Show with host Lori H. Schwartz. Each week we hear from established leaders in the technology and consumer industry. Finding out the scoop should never be this much fun. Now, here is your host, Lori H. Schwartz. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Tech Cat Show. And we are continuing our very long journey. (laughs) It's been about uh, five weeks now on the road to the Infinity Festival Hollywood, where we're talking to advisors and participants and great speakers who are part of the Infinity Festival, which is an event happening in November in Hollywood that is all about how technology is advancing storytelling. And today's exciting guest is Dane Smith, who is vice president at the fabulous third floor and he's going to tell us all about the third floor and what he does but dana is a longtime hollywood empresario <laughs> i was having trouble saying that that word um who has more than a decade of experience as a producer and innovator in visual effects and digital entertainment production and right now he's leading global business development and strategy for the third floor so let's have a big tech cat welcome for dane smith I love how the studio audience goes wild. How are you doing, Dane? <laughs> busy. How are you, Laurie? <laughs> we are busy, too. It is crazy, exciting times um, in, in this business. And you're really sitting at such an interesting crossword with the kind of you know wor- work that you're doing, um, both helping uh, projects before they get in front of people, helping uh, creators visualize how they're going to do something, and then also in the actual making of the stuff that that the audience will see. So tell us about your background first, and then all about the kind of stuff that you're doing at the third floor. So my background, I came into uh, entertainment just as we were going digital and, and getting away from analog, and I was a visual effects producer on uh, Star Trek Enterprise. And uh, during the summer months, back then we had a very formal television schedule, which meant summers were time off for most people working in television production. And we would take the considerable resources and talent we had over on the Sunset Gower lot. Um, I migrated here from Canada. I was working with a Canadian director, and we saw the opportunity back then to create CG animated shorts. And this was before any real uh, consumer-based software was available. Laptops weren't really beefy enough to do this. You really needed the resources of a studio to make theatrical quality output. And so we would take the summer and make animated shorts, and then I would take them out on the festival circuit. And we quickly got a lot of attention. Really, there wasn't a great deal of competition because consumer-based options to create this kind of content just weren't available. And we had a lot of early success, won hundreds of awards all around the world, making our animated films. And over time, I parlayed that into private equity funding and built an animation studio in Los Angeles and made an animated film. And um, we had uh, distribution lined up. We were called a work of art by Variety. We opened the Toronto Film Festival. We had all of the boxes checked. But there had been a couple of very public failures in independent animation, and suddenly our distributors got cold feet. What was happening at the time in tech was stereo, and stereography was starting to become popular. And because it was an animated film, uh, it was relatively easy to engineer a stereo conversion, and we did that and released uh, Battle for Terror on 1,200 screens through Lionsgate wow. just uh, you know in the same year that Avatar was coming out. So... The reason I tell that story is I was very cognizant of the fact um, that technology can help navigate some of the tricky waters of business. And, and so I continued to work in animation and visual effects production. I have about 100 credits. And because uh, Hollywood can be myopic, I was uh, pigeonholed as a stereo producer and, and went on to convert the last two Harry Potter films, worked as a stereo producer, but also tapped into this global network of artists and technicians that helped me achieve some of this work in in places all around the world and uh, tapped into that resource to do some pretty incredible visual effects on, on tent poles, things like Spider-Man and Potter and uh, a number of others. But I, I kept the entrepreneurial spirit going and... Um, 
as social media platforms started to become available and the technology got better, cheaper, faster, and was in everyone's hands, the original path that we took to make that first animated film was no longer relevant. But what was possible was crowdsourcing. And so we we um, banded together and uh, I got involved in uh, visual effects production on a film called Animalisa, which was stop-motion animation, crowdsourced, Charlie Kaufman script. It was nominated for an Oscar, released by Paramount, and was done with global resources, visual effects artists all over the world, small donations so cool. from all over the world, and it's a really, really beautiful film. Um, and then VR came along, and uh, I remember very clearly um, working on a theme park, and so we're designing media for a dome at a theme park in China. We're working in Santa Monica, and um, I hired my dream director. My director was Mark DePay, who invented the digital dinosaurs that we first saw in the early 90s in Jurassic Park. He's a hero of mine because his vision and persistence really helped visual effects turn the corner and usher in the digital age. And uh, that um, relationship um, was was something that allowed me to bring in the technology of VR. And so I'll explain. We had a dome that had not been built yet. We had CAD drawings, so digital replication of a dome that was to be built. We had media we were creating to be projected on the dome, and this is an immersive experience. Everywhere you look, there's media and audio. And Mark insisted that we get this new technology called VR, and we get a DK1. And at that point, I had to and go... Nobody knows. Wait, just explain what, a, what, what DK1 is and what a CAD is, just so the audience can... So a CAD... So I should explain that. That's a good... <laughs> thank you, Lori. <laughs> a CAD drawing is a, a, how an architect fashions a building that has yet to be built in a computer. So they're deciding the space between the girders, the uh, what's metal, what's concrete, what's glass. All of those decisions are being made in a 3D model in a computer. And so that is spit out as something called an OBG or OBJ or object file. And we're able to bring that into the digital environment and figure out where we're going to put our pretty pictures and audio. Um, and up until that point, I would have done it on a flat screen. Mark suggested we get a DK1, and at this point, Oculus had just released its first uh, prosumer device called a DK1. We actually had to go on aftermarket sites um, like Craigslist and eBay to be able to buy this technology because it was so popular at that time, they couldn't keep up the demand um, for these devices. And so we loaded this, this animation and this CAD drawing onto a machine, and I put on this head-mounted display, which is sort of like a, um, putting on a scuba mask that's blacked out. And in, in the scuba mask, instead of looking through a piece of glass, you're looking at a device that is projecting through your entire field of vision and creating the illusion in your mind that you've inserted yourself in the media. And this is an underwater show. There were fish and coral and... I still remember it talking about it right now. I, I saw this moment where I realized that this is an incredibly powerful B2B tool. This is a way for creators and financiers and producers to get inside media, see exactly what they're buying into, make creative decisions long before um, any real money is being spent, any, any commitments are made to crew. And while it's still relatively inexpensive to change your mind, which is what you know, that's where you want to spend your time initially in a project in that first few months really making creative decisions and not having any restrictions on you. And this technology allowed you to do it. And, as and a that, result, that's the, the, the big concept behind, that's the big concept ultimately behind pre-visualization, right? Is that you are getting to exactly. see what you're going to make and how it will work before you do it. And that's, that's the, exactly where I was headed. So the company that I am vice president of today, the third floor, we're celebrating 15 years this month. So wow. um, that's remarkable. No you know, external financing. We're not uh, a publicly traded company. This is all private. And more r- miraculously, it is run by six founders that are artists that still work here today. They're outside my office right now working on, I think I have 27 shows on the floor right now. And that includes... Lucasfilm projects, Marvel projects, and a number of others from most of the major studios and some of the new digital players that have come to town, like Apple and 
Amazon and Netflix and, and that group. Um, but yes, so that is precisely what we do. And, and the way the business started 15 years ago, this is long before I was part of Third Floor, is animated storyboards. So this started with the prequels for Star Wars, and we're called the Third Floor because it started on the third floor of Lucasfilm Ranch, where Chris Edwards, my boss, the CEO, and his uh, cohorts were designing films for Spielberg and Lucas, and they would have concepts, and, and the founders would draw them out scan them and put them into an avid timeline so you could play a clip and see if the scene worked. Put it up on its feet before you went out and spent all the time and energy fielding a team, renting stages, hiring actors and costumes and lights. You can do it all on the computer and really figure out, does this hit the beats I want it to? Is this holding water? And that's how pre-visualization was born. Very different from what it is today because technology has advanced you know, tenfold from those days. And what we do today really starts with that same simple concept. We sit down with a director or producer and we have the document, the script, and we start to sketch out digitally what some of the scenes may look like. Um, But we've expanded beyond um, the services we provided before you step on set. We're now on set and we're in the uh, post process as well. That's so cool. And it's it's amazing when you see, you know, how much it really does help a director to, you know, to do these big franchise movies, especially, which I think consumers are getting more and more used to understanding the technology involved with, with pre-visualization. But are, are people coming to you now, new clients coming to you, having a, a set of expectations about what pre-visualization can do? Or are you guys still continuously training? Well, we're constantly educating our client base because our client base has expanded. We now do commercials. We do cut scenes and cinematics for video games. A very large portion of our work over the past several years has been designing theme parks. And there's, there's really three entry points there. Most theme parks are real estate uh, initiatives. And so there'll be a piece of land and they'll uh, segment a certain portion of it to be the theme park or entertainment sector. And initially it starts, typically the operator or the financier doesn't have the IP yet. They, they're just exploring ideas. So we'll do sort of a blue sky pass. We'll do a visualization of what it could be like to walk through this park, what some of the ideas may look like. Is it a world of dragons? Is it a world of pandas? Is it somehow tied to the region that this real estate is in? Is it historic? Is it space or underwater based? We'll start to explore and sketch and create a beautiful blue sky piece, something we call pitch viz for the boardroom so that people can get on the same page creatively. Everyone's looking at the media, so we're not reading it. We have a clear picture of what the vision is of the creator. Um, and then a couple of years will go by and they'll come back with a little more buttoned up um, on the information spectrum. They'll, they'll know what size and scope. They typically have the IP lined up. And then we get those same CAD drawings I was referencing earlier. And we start to get under the hood and figure out how quickly the ride should perform. What is digital media? What is physical media? And then we will pre-visualize the media that appears on the screens. What we're doing right now is going a step beyond that. And there, there's something that's really accelerated innovation in the last couple of years in Hollywood, and that's the game engine, Unreal huh. and, uh, and Unity. And so if you think about the premise of a video game, if I'm playing the game and there's a level of visual fidelity in the, in the media that appears in front of me, if I turn to the left or right, the developer, the producer and publisher of that game owe me that same experience. It must look the same in every direction that I turn. And what that requires is very rapid, real-time rendering. Um, And that's been something that's been available in the world of games for a number of years and is starting to really make leaps and bounds in Hollywood. And so we're able to unlock the power of that technology and create an experience very close to what that final park experience will be like. And on our recent project which has to remain nameless right now because of NDAs, and uh, it'll be obvious to everyone next summer what I'm talking about. On our latest project, it's actually interactive. Your huh. physical motion is 
manipulating the media. You are the game. You are in the game. You're experiencing the game and the ride all simultaneously, and we're designing it all here. It's the same premise as we used 15 years ago. It's just on a different platform. It's on the game engine. So are these, um, you know, because you're doing the theme park stuff and you're also doing movies and commercials and television, are the types of things that you're doing in each of those verticals then influencing the work that you're doing in each of those verticals? So maybe something you accomplish in the theme park. Do you guys bring that same thinking then to work you might be doing in TV because you're just learning at each each time you do something? Correct. So that's that's a great question. So what's happened early on? The the founders of this company recognized that the power um, that we tap into is really technology. So we've made a huge investment in technology and an R and D team. We have a segment of the company that's just dedicated to blue sky development of the latest tools, trying out new technology, seeing how we can apply it. But you're absolutely right because that same game engine that was initially used for theme parks is now used across every sector. The other thing that you mentioned that has changed is our clients have changed. So television, I don't even really know what that means anymore because most of the episodic work that we're doing, um, our clients are people who deliver products to your door or build phones and devices or um, are a digital platform that is developing 700 titles. The old model of six movie studios and three television networks um, has kind of been eclipsed by all of these tech players coming to town and starting to acquire IP, develop content, and then as it pushes back out to the audience, it rolls across every sector. We call it transmedia. You're making an OTT show that you're releasing on Netflix, which is also a game, which is also going to be in the theme park this summer. And it's the same assets, same concept, sometimes the same creatives building a world. Huh. That's, that's, um, it's pretty insane. And it's, and it's happened really quickly, right? Like, would you have been talking about game engines three years ago? I, mean, I don't think so. Like- I mean, they're definitely on the horizon. Maybe I would have been talking about them, but I'm no longer talking about them. We're training people in them. We're acquiring them. We're tweaking them. We're redesigning them for our own purposes. And our clients come in the door asking for them. That's the big change. Our clients are aware of them. And and is it the, the kind of, the of thing, do you think, just as someone, this is just, this is a big, crazy question, and then we'll get some, into some trends and things, but... Do you see TV, film, and these experiences kind of all combining? Because every single one of them, as it changes, it sets up expectations for the other, right? So if if I'm used to having these crazy experiences at a theme park, won't my need for something like that happen in a TV or film world too? Well, I think it really depends on the IP. So there are... Genres of film or styles of film that are still best experienced in a theater. If you think about comedy and horror, you want to see it too in a theater with a group. You know, you want to get those scares with a group. You want to go through that experience in, in a theater. Um, if you're watching maybe Orange is the New Black, you're okay watching that on your iPad because it doesn't have the same punch as the group experience of watching a horror or, or the latest comedy in a, in a social setting. If you take either one of those IP, they may not translate to a park. What is very clear to everyone is the game industry has really taken over the narrative in Hollywood, the attention and the dollars of, of a large sector of the audience. So which of those games are going to translate back into film and television. And no one's really cracked that open yet. There's been a few um, attempts. Most of them, it could be argued, haven't quite hit the mark. But I think that that's the next wave because it's really about building a world that the audience has invested time and energy into, that the audience is familiar with the lexicon, the characters, the rules, and then it becomes a challenge of the creators to build that across a new silo. So while the technical tools are invading every vertical, the narrative and the storytelling is still finding its way. I think there's a lot of opportunity right now. 
Huh. And what what of of all the things that you have most recently worked on the third floor, what has surprised you the most in terms of people's reaction to it? Uh, that's a great question. I think the surprise really um, comes from how rapidly our theme park clients, who are really film people, most of them, uh, most of the studios are wings of of, uh, traditional movie studios, embraced and deployed this new technology. I mean, we went from pitching something that was pretty bleeding edge to fielding a team of 30 people working on it in a, a matter of weeks, and that almost never happens in my business, especially when it's new technology. I like to say that everyone's in a race to be in second place. No one wants to be the first one to try something. Um, right, right, right. That makes sense. Our park clients embraced it very, very quickly and ramped up, and it's delivering on the promise. Right, 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 right. I, 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 and I totally get that. So, so you sort of start to develop a category of the work you're doing where they're more open to the madness just because of their culture too, right? Right. They're sort of right. more used to um, more used to rapid change. Uh, are there other technology trends that are impacting the kind of work that you do? You know, are there more so people the com- big, coming out of schools? Go ahead. So the other big trend is virtual production, which is an umbrella term that means a number of things to a number of people. If you look at something like the recent release of Lion King, they use virtual production, and you can do a deep dive into what that means, but in the simplest possible terms, it means everything that you're seeing was created on a computer. And the tools that are now in the hands of filmmakers um, are very familiar to people like Caleb Deschanel and, and director John Favreau. It, it's really the same to them as shooting a live-action film because these tools have evolved so much. In our corner of the world at Third Floor, we're applying that same technology, virtual production, um, to previs. So... What does that look like? What it means is I can put the director in the set. So we'll go out and digitally scan a set. We'll drop it into what we call a volume. We'll populate that set with people wearing XN suits, which are not the bulky mocap suits that were thick rubber and had big ping pong balls on them of years past. These are very thin, can be worn under a costume, and they're emitting a signal that's picked up by the computer. And that signal can translate to a giant monkey or a crab or Godzilla or any number of things. And so as the director is holding up a device that looks very much like an iPad, and and in some cases it is actually an iPad or tablet, commercial tablet, they're looking through the lens. I'm giving air quotes here because you're not actually looking (laughs) at a lens. You're looking at a tablet. Yeah. And you're looking at that scan data, which has been augmented to look like, let's, let's, for the purpose of this description, call it a jungle. And the monkey that's coming through the jungle is an actor that's in front of you, but you aren't looking at the actor. You're looking through the viewfinder or the tablet at the digital character that it's driving. And in that same world are live action actors that are interacting in real time. And to put the cherry on top, there may also be walls that are LED screens where we're designing and pumping media through. So you're looking through that tablet and you're seeing pretty close to your final shot. Ten years ago, you were looking at a giant sea of green and someone was standing there in costume looking at a tennis ball and we were hoping to get it all right. And a lot of time and energy was spent in post-production cobbling something together. Today, we're able to take a director down to our stage and put them in the scene. And if they really want to take it to the next level, they can put on a head-mounted display and really walk around that scene and get true parallax, truly change the relationship between where the camera is sitting and where the object that they're filming is sitting, change lens packages, change lighting setups. We can scan any part of the world. So if you're shooting in Trafalgar Square at 5 o'clock on November 17th, we can tell you exactly where the shadows will be cast where you should put your camera. And we can print all of this out, hand it to everyone that's on stage or on set, and they know exactly what the director wanted. And even more importantly, the director doing that work is alone or with maybe an editor and an animator designing this so they don't have 50 people standing around them with their arms folded looking at them, waiting for them to make a decision. They're doing this 
removed from all of that pressure. So when they do actually step on set and hundreds of thousands of dollars per hour are being burned, they're supremely confident in what they're going to do. They're supremely confident that all of their team have, have a clear idea of what they want to do because they've spent the time up front at probably 1% of the budget to plan all of this. Well, that's that's amazing. Hey, Dane, we have to take a break. This is such great stuff. Um, we'll be back in a moment. We're talking to Dane Smith, who's vice president over at the third floor, just getting educated on the, how technology is impacting virtual production um, and the making of content with all the new gaming tools. So we'll be back in a moment with the fabulous Dane Smith on the Tech Cat Show. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. The key point of contact between consumers and brands is technology. StoryTech, a boutique agency, empowers you to use that tech to deliver your message, engage your customers, and raise the bottom line. How do you track and exploit the trends? How do you stay ahead of industry disruption? And how do you maximize profit from content? From strategy to execution, the answer is StoryTech. Inform, innovate, create. Visit us at story-tech.com. That's story-tech.com. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is the Tech Cat Show with Lori H. Schwartz. If you want to find out more about our show or to leave a comment or question, send an email to lori at techcat.tv. That's lori at techcat.tv. Hi, everybody, and we are back. We have been on the road to the Infinity Festival of Hollywood, which is a great event happening in November, all about storytelling being advanced by technology, and we've been chatting with Dane Smith, who is vice president over at the third floor, and we've been talking about pre-visualization and virtual production and how gaming engines are really playing a big role in, in the future of Hollywood. So one of the questions I get all the time is, you know, how is some of this stuff being monetized? So obviously you're monetizing it on the on the tool and creation side. But when it comes to the other side, when it comes to content creators who are trying to maybe create virtual reality for consumers, do you see that world changing? I mean, is VR going to ever, you know, hit prime time? So I think in some in some ways, it already has. If you look at gaming, if you look at Sony PlayStation, I think there's 3 million VR headsets out there that are being used to play those products on that platform. So if you're, if you're Sony, you're, you're going to answer that question by saying it's already happened. Um, what happened early on with VR is we got a little ahead of ourselves. I think that the large sum of money that was invested by Mark Zuckerberg in... Uh, in the early Oculus, created a gold rush of VC money, and all of these shops popped up. I'm here in Los Angeles, so we call the area Silicon Beach, the west side. Every cool name you can think of had a shop attached to it and some way to monetize VR. And sadly, a lot of those shops have shuttered, and there were also some retail experiences around VR um, by some very established entertainment companies that couldn't quite make a go of it. They shuttered as well. As I mentioned earlier, my 
light bulb moment with VR was a B2B tool, a way to get my clients inside what I'm doing so that they can clearly understand the impact of the decisions they're making before we've really tapped into the budget. So I always viewed it that way. Now, I did explore several uh, retail, I'll call them retail VR experiences, um, I got the rights and, and the opportunity to work with Stan Lee on Cosmic Crusaders, and we went down to Comic-Con about five years ago. We scanned Stan's beach house, and we handed out Google Cardboards, and everyone popped in their smartphone and downloaded an app, and they got to spend a few minutes with Stan Lee, who we recorded as an element that we composited into a VR experience, and he introduced this new imprint to you called Cosmic Crusaders. And it was a great stunt. It was a great marketing piece. Um, I don't know that anyone would have paid hard currency for that. I did develop a couple of other sports and entertainment retail experiences that just never realized the cost that went into producing them. So I tried to stay in the B2B realm. Now, there were some exceptions, and and outside of gaming, I think the answer to your question is yes. We're starting to see, I mean, if you look at uh, Dreamscape over at Westwood, and they're opening. I think they just opened in Dallas, and they've got uh, a location in the Middle East. These are interactive experiences, so it's sort of the third wave of VR where you pay the gate, you go into a completely customized world and fiction, um, and you put on the head-mounted display, but there are haptic, and what I mean by haptic is the floor will rumble, or you'll feel the heat of a flame all baked into the experience, and you can see your friends in the VR experience. And the other, the other trend that's starting to come online, which will really push this forward, is AR. So that's augmented reality. If you think about those uh, funny Snapchat filters that put ears on your head, that's a basic overlay of a graphic onto a live photograph or live uh, right. photographic feed. If you imagine that being tracked and being in 3D and being interactive, that's augmented reality. Uh, And that's some of the early wave of development that's going on right now. And I think once you get that audience into those experiences with familiar IP, which is is exactly what Dreamscape are doing, um, you're going to see a huge rush because people still want to go out and socialize. And the problem with some of the early VR retail experiences was you put on this isolating piece of headgear. And while maybe if you're playing a video game and you want to be very focused on what you're doing and the other people that you're playing with are online as well, you can have that social experience and be isolated by the technology. But for the average family, it's not as interesting. If you introduce augmented reality, so you and I, Lori, walk into an experience and we can see one another, but we can also see the media and we can interact with the media, it starts to become much more interesting. And we're involved in development across a couple of different IP with that game plan. And I think in the next two years, you're going to start to see what we call location-based entertainment or pop-up entertainment that has been heightened with this technology. And one of the areas that we're seeing embrace this is pop music. So we're working with two globally How's known pop that? stars. That just sounds crazy to me. <laughs> well, if you think about it, the they no longer really drive a lot of revenue from physical media. No one's going down to Tower Records and buying CDs anymore. Those days are gone. And most people listen to their music for pennies a stream on, on uh, streaming platforms. So they really derive the revenue from merchandise and touring. But it can be incredibly grueling to get out there on tour and and expensive. Um, But imagine if you build a single location, and that location allows you and I to go in and interact with the pop star, and maybe they even perform there once in a while. Maybe you can be in their iconic videos and have a social media moment with them. This is the sort of thing we're developing with two major stars, and I think that if we get it right, we're going to see an explosion among that community and among that fan base because people still like to go out and have a good time. People still love music. There's a social aspect to it. And if you, you don't need to look any further than Coachella, which sells out before they even announce the acts, to know that there's an appetite for this sort of thing. So if you layer technology on top of the festival experience, I think uh, it becomes quite interesting. So do you think that the modern filmmaker then or the modern storyteller, whether they're doing it at a festival or at a park or 
on TV or in a theater has to embrace technology in order to stay relevant? I think that the advantages to embracing technology outweigh the disadvantages. And while I don't think that the director or creative voice needs to understand how to get under the hood and write code and press the buttons, the best product is created when they partner with people that do. I think there are there's a clear dividing line uh, in the creative talent pool, and one is technically based and serves the creative, and the other is creative that feeds off of what's possible. And there's this symbiotic relationship that happens when an engineer shows a creative what's possible with the technology, and then the creative takes it places that we haven't seen it go before. And I think what we're going to see is kids that have grown up with tablets, VR goggles, gaming is just the norm. That's the baseline. When they approach adulthood and they start to tell stories and they start to write and direct, they're not going to be bound by a 4-3 screen or three television channels that go off the air at 11 o'clock or an 8-bit video game. They're, they're starting so far ahead of where I started. I think that the next Spielberg or the next uh, George Lucas will have a baked-in understanding of what's possible with technology. And if they can partner with the right engineers, uh, all bets are off. I think we have a really exciting future ahead of us. God, I love all that. Are you someone that, you know, is your house filled with the latest tech because you're, you know, talking about this, looking at this, um, this is like your world? Like, is your house like this super, super connected home? Guilty. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so what, what's I love like the, what I do because I have thing? an excuse. Well, what's the coolest thing in your house? Um, like something that people get excited about? I think the coolest thing in my house is being able to, I have a young, I have a two-year-old, a toddler. So being able to transfer the experience, whether it's music or media or a game we're playing from room to room seamlessly things like these new gaming platforms that allow me to step from the console onto a portable device and back onto the console in another room, uh, to be able to listen to music on multiple devices and transfer it from space to space, basically to be in a tech bubble that I've designed that is allowing me to access the artists and experiences that I'm interested in at that moment um, and and that travels with me. Mm. So all I just, the technology I that allows that, me to do that. I decided I have to get invited to your house now. Because um, <laughs> that's like ridiculous. A lot of school. Sesame now, Street going on right now. A lot I of know, Sesame Street. You, that's the exciting part about when they're this young. I mean, my kid is really into Roblox, and she loves her Nintendo Switch. And sure. she's starting to sure. FaceTime without me even yep. talking to her about it. Her friends at nine years old, which is a mind blow to me. It's very natural for her yeah. to, to pick it up at, at nine. So, you know, all, all that is mind blow. So speaking of the younger generation, because, uh, you know, in your bio, you're, you teach, right? Um, you teach at some mm-hmm. local local schools um, about... I teach at a school called Noman. So it's rated as the best visual effects school in the world. I've taught there for about a decade. It's been going for about 15 years. And I really do it out of a love of inspiring the next generation. It also keeps me on my toes because these kids are coming in for an education in the next wave of technology. So I can't teach them what I was doing last year. I have to research and explore what's coming next and translate it into tangible terms that they can use to monetize and build a career. And, you know, the other thing is it gives me an excuse to buy more of that tech. Right. I, know, I totally know what you mean because um, I, I, I teach sometimes too. But my, my question for you is, are you seeing a different kind of candidate come through the school? You know, is there a new generation coming up? Do they have a different attitude? I mean, what are these kids like, you know, and how are they entering? What are their expectations for, for the workforce? So the the changes are, there's a demographic shift, definitely. When I first started working in visual effects, it was all 45 to 55-year-old white guys with ponytails wearing Hawaiian shirts. That was the floor. That was who the artists and technologists were. <laughs> That's like my were. dating life That right was there. visual effects. <laughs> <laughs> and if you come into the third floor today, it looks exactly like Wilshire Boulevard looks outside. Every 
size, shape, color, and uh, influence you would see in the real world we see here. And the same things happen in the classroom. But the other thing that's happened in the classroom is because of the democratization of the tools and the early and easy access to some of the technology, um, the demographic has shifted financially as well. You don't need to be wealthy to be able to access these tools and use them. And then the other thing that's happened is the influence of gaming. When I first started teaching just 10 years ago, I would always start the semester by asking what people wanted to do, and at least three-quarters wanted to go into film and television. Now it's very rare anyone ever answers the question that, that way. It's all gaming. It's all interactive. It's VR, AR, mixed reality. Very few people. It's almost quaint when someone says they want to work in uh, film and television because film and television are a logical byproduct of what they're going to do, but the passion among my students at least um, is gaming. Oh, cool. I, I mean, are you someone, though, that um, are you playing games yourself, you know, now now that you're teaching it, you're thinking about it, and the engines are part of, you know, like, are you, is that something you would do with your, you know, free time as if you had any? I'm, I'm using gaming technology professionally. I'm not, I have to confess, I'm not someone that goes home at night and loads a game and plays it. I'm still someone that is... Uh, very interested in traditional media and music. Now, I do use uh, technology to access those things, and um, I see the impact of gaming on some of my younger relatives. You know, my nephew's just lost in Minecraft. I mean, there's nothing, nothing that captivates his, inform- his imagination more than that experience. And I get it. I understand it. I think I might be a little uh, beyond the age that um, is going to go home and and load a game. Although we'll see what happens with my son. You know, it's interesting because I I finally broke down and I bought the the Oculus Quest. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just kept thinking one will just miraculously show up. (laughs) I got one. (laughs) And and I'm finding that I'm spending a little bit more time, um, you know, every week on it. Like, I have to find the time, and I have to do it when my daughter's not around because I don't want her to start to want it and never get a hold of it again for myself. But right. I was right. I was using that, um, that Beat Saber game, which is kind of like using, um, you know, uh, Star Wars sabers to hit blocks to music. Sure. <laughs> and I'm finding that it's a fantastic stress release. You know, which I'm really yeah, surprised. I think, I, yeah, I think that <laughs> what's missing for me sometimes is the social aspect. So you mentioned Beat Saber. There's a conference which I'd only become aware of probably eight or ten years ago. It's called IAPA, I-A-A-P-A. And that conference is in Orlando, Florida, which is the global headquarters for all things theme park. And it's a theme park conference, and they have a lot of technology there now. And the last time I went, they had these sort of stand-up VR experiences. And I realized in answering your question earlier, I was excluding VR from that for some reason. So I do have VR games, and I do engage in VR. But this Beat Saber was set up on a kiosk. So I could play it, and the people around me could see my interaction with the media and you know because you played it, it's so addictive because it combines graphics and music and physical motion and a lightsaber. I mean, they just struck gold with that. Um, but the fact that it can be done socially is great. We have a product that we released on Steam. I think it's 2 or $3. It's called Mad Factory, and it's the same premise. It's a retro design game, so it looks like a 1950s version of the future. It's called Mad Factory, and it, it's... Uh, creates a torrent of tasks for you that become increasingly complex and increasingly more frustrating the more efficient you are. So the longer you go at it, the more difficult it becomes. Beat Saber kind of has that vibe as well. And it's wildly popular because when it's played, we have it on a screen. So I can watch how well you're doing and I can cheer you on or hope that I'm going to score better than you. There's a leaderboard and it's a very simple graphic. But when I see that... I think we're looking at the future of this technology. If we can introduce it to a social environment, um, I think it will really catch on. I, I love all that too. So, so the 
um, the the event that um, you know we've so, sort of surrounded um, these last uh, eight interviews that I've been doing on the show is all themed around the Infinity Festival, and it's just a wonderful. Um, aggregation of thought leaders and advisors and speakers in this sort of art of technology and storytelling. Um, so what what do you think um, you're going to get exposed to at the show? And what are you guys going to be talking about? You know, I'm, I'm going to be working with you so, to get you up on stage somehow. So I'm just curious, like, yeah. what, what do you think will be some of the... So, Definitely no surprise to the people that have been listening for the last few minutes. It's going to be about Game Engine. It's going to be about virtual production. And we're going to be showing some exclusive material from some of the high-profile Marvel films we've worked on and things like Game of Thrones and educate the audience uh, as to the specific problems that are solved with this technology. But what I really get excited about is is you and Mark and Nick and everyone involved in Infinity has done such a great job of bringing L.A. together. My background, as I mentioned earlier, I would take short animated films out on the festival circuit, and it always baffled me that L.A. didn't have that. Why did I have to go to Park City and Tribeca and Cannes? Why don't we have that in our backyard? This is where all the creative energy is. And there, you know, there's the L.A. Film Festival and the AFI, but they're kind of, they were always sort of carbon copies of other festivals. There wasn't this sense of discovery that I had at some of the other festivals. And last year at Infinity, that's exactly what happened because what we've tapped into at Infinity is the technology, the technical component to entertainment. And we have that in spades in L.A. And so when you introduce technology to entertainment, that's something that is unique to Southern California and Los Angeles. And they've just done such a great job of curating people. Really what I look forward to is after the lights go down at night, just networking, reconnecting with people that I only really chat with online, finding out what they've been up to and what's next. Yeah, it's such a it's such a good beat uh, uh, a good point because um, it is really the aggregation of all of these things, and that's how you know you make the magic happen. Um, so get, getting all these thought leaders together. Are you still at the point in your career when when you go to an event like this, you learn something new, or you know you're already talking to everyone all the time anyway? Or is there always are you always caught off guard or surprised by something? So what I learned that's new is networking and relationships. You know, once you have an understanding of the technology, uh, it's a much more interesting conversation to find out who is using it and how they're using it and maybe in what capacity or on which IP. I remember last year um, being in a circle of people, and one of them works for a large tech platform that probably releases more media now than anyone else, um, Netflix, and... Uh, the other was a creator, a director who's always embraced technology, and I learned about a project that they were creating, which really involved world building, and it reset the development um, starting line to be around building a world so that you could enter this world at any point in time from any angle and with any technology and write a 10-episode series or create the theme park. It was a, a very interesting way to use the technology, and while I may have been able to speak to someone on the phone about it or had one-on-one conversations with the people involved in it. It's much different standing in the circle of people that are creating it and hearing that sort of interactive, immersive conversation, having that light bulb moment where you realize the potential of what they're discussing. And I think that you can really only do that in a social setting. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's in that those moments where, to your point, new projects are born when you see the mixture of, of technologies. Because um, what I've been seeing a lot, you know, on, on Facebook um, is a lot of people setting up um, virtual meetups and concerts and things like that, e- you know, either in um, different Oculus apps, VR chat and things like that. Um, and I and I feel like, you know, in the next year or two, maybe some of these events that we're throwing will be in those environments. Mm-hmm. I think that um, to some degree that's starting to happen. You know, there was the Fortnite uh, Marshmallow concert that just, you know, in it, by any metric that you gauge that experience with, um, just created off-the-charts attention. And I think that... If we go back to the pop stars I was talking about earlier, they're all gamers. Whenever I go and visit these guys, they're sitting there, guys and gals, they've got a giant screen up and they're playing games. That's how they're passing their time. So that's, 
invading pop culture. It's immersing itself into the message that's going out and the type of media we experience. And so it's only natural that it will become the wrapper that the product is, is delivered in. And I think that uh, the uh, biggest influence in the last 10 years on pop culture and entertainment is video games because of quality. Right, right, right. <clears throat> and, um, and, and that quality is just continuing to improve. I mean, the expectations that I think someone like my daughter is going to have as she has, you know, extra cash to spend on things is going to be a whole, you know, different level than, um, than we ever had, right? Um, you know, a, as she enters the workforce and uh, how she chooses what kind of content she wants to consume because again she's using all of this stuff now so i can't even imagine right you know like what the world's going to be um in 10 years from now well we have to wrap so dane smith where can we learn more about what you're doing and more about the third floor well i think uh the best place to go let me make sure i have this url correctly i mean first of all please come to the infinity festival I'll be there. All of my colleagues will be there. Anyone who's doing anything interesting in this jurisdiction will be there. Um, and if you want to stay current on what we're doing, go to thethirdfloor.com. And uh, we have a very active uh, social media feed that you can pick up on there, as well as all of our latest press clippings. And uh, we keep that site pretty fresh. There's a lot of current information on it. Yeah, I was actually um, following your Twitter feed the other day, and you're always dropping um, fun little content tidbits and sharing some of the work that you guys are doing that those of us who are total geeks on certain franchises uh, just lose our minds over. So it's a great Twitter yeah. feed if, if you're um, a fan of large franchises. <laughs> it's yeah, like absolutely. You can do- totally lose hours of your time. Well, thank you so much, Jane Smith, who is the VP over at the third floor. Um, and we've been talking to him all day. Insights around pre-visualization and virtual production and the future of content and entertainment and e- in even um, a little dip into location-based experiences. Thank you so much, Jane. And check out everything Jane My is pleasure, doing. My pleasure, Lori. Thank you. At the third floor. And we'll be back next week with hopefully someone as interesting and exciting and who has as cool of a home as Dane Smith has, and um, and I'll certainly invite all of you to his home once I score the address. So we'll be back next week with more technology and trend insights on the Tech Cat Show, the road to the Infinity Festival Hollywood. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to the Tech Cat Show. Please join Lori H. Schwartz again for another great program next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel and syndicated to the Voice America Women's Channel. 